Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So we began, remember last week, talking about B'nai Elim, you know, Havilat and I, B'nai Elim, Havilat and I, Kavod the O's. And one of the things, I, I'm going to repeat what, where we ended, okay, once again, what is B'nai Elim? Sons of the gods, literally. So it, my my suggestion is that based upon other usages of the word B'nai, the meaning of mem it could mean members of a particular group who studied or practiced whatever that group was about. It is possible B'nai Elim refers to a cohort of heavenly beings who comprise part of Hashem's court. They may or not be angels. They may have a charge of divine power from Hashem in them, but they are not gods per se. As Siegel suggests, they are the audience that the speaker is addressing in order to put the fear of God into them and clarify that even though they are part of Hashem's court, they are not deities. Hashem is the one and only deity who created everything, can destroy everything and restore everything, including them. So who the speaker is supposed to be, we do not know. It could be an archangel. The psalmist doesn't tell us the message to us. As readers of the psalm is very clear, Hashem was, is, and always will be the one and only God. Okay, so I think that's that's what this is about. But again, you can see that whole term is a kind of a vestige of the ancient polytheistic roots out of which the the religion of Israel emerged. Okay, all right. Now, then it goes on, and now we're going to, again, one of the other things to to keep in mind, just want to, again, to remind you of the significance of this psalm. God's name is mentioned 18 times in the 11 verses of this psalm, which is the most concentrated use of the name of God in the Bible. And again, if you think of this in terms of making an impression upon the B'nai Elim and putting them in their place, you got it. Okay, you'd say it's over, it's sort of like overkill, but that's the whole point. Okay. Havalodonai kavod shemo hishtach avuladonai bahadrat kodesh. Okay, so ascribe to God, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, Bow down to the Lord in the majesty of holiness. Okay. So now, kavod, okay, and shame are very important names or not, are words that are associated with God. Kavod Adonai is used frequently. It's the glory of God. Okay. So sometimes the, that word kavod can actually refer to an essence of God. So, for example, in Shmot, when the tabernacle goes out, goes up, when it goes up, Kavod Adonai fills the tabernacle. So that Kavod there, it means it is an expression of the essence of the presence of God. Okay? Here, however, it clearly does not mean that it's referring to more glory and honor of God, because it says Kavod Shmot the glory and honor of God's name. Okay, so glory here is more of a descriptive than it is referring to the essence of God. 
but it can be both. The same is with the word shame, right? Shame can be the name of God. Yes, and it can be. Okay. However, as it, you, and it really is, or it could be here, right? Referring to the name of God, a name that has glory associated with it. But the fact is, shame can also be something that expresses the essence of God because, or is a surrogate, if you will, for God's presence. Because in Deuteronomy, it's clear, starting in chapter 12, that God's presence, the kavod, right, the esh, or the, just Hashem, the name, I mean, the presence itself, in, in Deuteronomy, God is upstairs in heaven. God does not come down to earth in Deuteronomy. What is it that God places in the tabernacle? Remember in Shemot, it says, I will be in that tabernacle. Build me a house and I shall dwell in it. Right? God says, yes. All right. But here it says explicitly, I will cause my name to be in the tabernacle. That's what it's, I'm quoting. That's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 12. I will cause my name to be there. Now that, now you got to keep in mind that name, the concept of a name as embodying, embodying some kind of amazing power is, is quite extensive in ancient lore. Okay. The name itself has power. Think of the Kaddish. Yit Kadal Vid Kadash, what? Shemei Rabbah. Magnified and glorified is the name, the great name, the great name, right? So the, we're glorifying the name because the name conveys the essence of God. So it's, uh, these terms can be, you see how these words in Hebrew uh, alt, have, have multiple nuances to them. And that's why it's when you, when you, you know, when you re, when you want to get into the wording, you've got to look at a dictionary, a good lexicon or a, or, or a concordance. When I'll, later on, there's a word that pops up later. I was having a deuce of a time trying to figure out what the root was because I wanted to understand how it could mean something when it seemed none of the made, none of the normal usages of it. I you know, were found. Finally, I went into a different dictionary where they broke it down differently. I found the root of the word. I then went back into the Curler Baumgartner, and there it was. Okay, but it, the, because the nuances associated with the with with, the, with these Hebrew letters you know, put together in a word, it, it, it's mind-boggling. That's a challenge. I'm, I see your hand, Tybal. And, and and when you look at Midrash, that's why you can see the same verse interpreted in Midrash in different ways, because they're they're pulling different rabbis or different groups of rabbis are pulling at different nuances of the same word. And they're all right. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the uses in the Bible, which you can see when you have these books that refer to multiple usages. You'll see that it's unbelievable the degree to which these terms get interpreted and reinterpreted. I'm supposing 
All of this is a result of the fact that you're dealing with a language that is over 3,000 years old. And you're dealing only with the biblical period. You're talking about a period of about a thousand years. And over the course of a thousand years, right, when you consider that you have different cultural centers between the North and the South, yes, you're going to find different nuances attached to the same, same words. Sometimes you can figure out the common denominator, but sometimes it's hard. And I'm sure other ancient languages have the same issue, but I'm not a linguist. I'm thinking that perhaps, you know, you know, ancient Greek, uh, you know, ancient Egyptian, people who know those things probably see this similar stuff. I know, look, even in English, right? You can think about it. Go look at the Oxford English Dictionary. Look at how the meanings, the nuances of words, just in the terms of the, you know, English from England, you know, relatively young language, so to speak, you know, but there it is. Okay. All right. Tybal and then Barbara. So um, usually I've heard rabbis talk about the name of God most closely associated with the tabernacle is the Shrina or or the presence. So is there a connection between Shem as an essence and Shrina? No. Shrina comes from the Hebrew root Shachan, which means to dwell. So Shrina, which is a rabbinic term, not a biblical term, it's a it's a an, an expansion of what it says Build me a bayit, and I will vishachanti, right there in, in Exodus. Okay, build me a, build me a house, vishachanti pitocham, and I will dwell in their house, in that, in the, in their midst. No, so there's no connection between the two. No. Barbara. What, what's the difference between a lexicon and a concordance? A lexicon actually shows you the uh, the etymological development of a word and the multiplicity of meanings. Um, uh, you know, a concordance lists the uh, the clause in which every single word in the Bible is found. It's mm. done alphabetic, alphabetically based upon the roots of the words. Now, a, a, a concordance, a good, the concordance that I use, which is a good concordance, uh, also breaks it down by meaning. Okay. Uh, that doesn't necessarily, but that's meaning as it appears in the Tanakh itself. The people who put together the concordance may not have had exposure to ancient Near Eastern texts. They tend to be very pious <clears throat> Jews. Who focus, you know, who's, who focus correctly for concordance, but they may not necessarily uh, have the uh, ad- the advantage that a more secular type of student would use would have by looking at cognate words, words of a similar sound or similar meaning, in other big, uh, ancient languages. So concordance basis basic tells you where you can find every single word in all of its grammatical permutations in the Bible. So my concordance with tiny print 
<clears throat> the most recent one published in Israel is four big volumes long, multiple column. Okay? All right, so that's the answer. All right. <clears throat> now, so, uh, all right, so the glory of God's name, majestic in, you know, and the majesty of holiness. Again, holiness is also a very significant word, obviously, right? It can be the holiness of God, right? But holy is also relates to sacred items, to sacred acts. That's also very, very significant, uh, very significant term. All right. By the way, the, those words also relate to different parts of the tabernacle. That's something else. We'll talk about that later. All right. <clears throat> now, we now, uh, so the, the, the next thing I, I'm here to tell you is that verses one and two constitute the first element of another inclusio, our old friend, Mr. Inclusio, the frame. We have a frame here, too, and the frame will be completed in verses 10 and 11 at the end. And here, what marks the frame is that each one of these verses contains uh, two elements, I mean, sorry, two expressions of God's name. So you have two, two, right? And then you have two and two again at the end, which means eight of the 18 expressions of yud heh vav in the, in the, in the psalm are contained the beginning and the end. Not all of the lines, most of the lines do not necessarily have you know, two usages in each, in each, uh, each, in each sentence. Okay. So that's that. The fact that it repeats that structure is found in the first two verses, and in the last two verses, tells us that we're framing this again, because what's inside is to be understood as a single powerful statement, even though it may contain different elements, which we saw very clearly in verse 19, where you have three different sections. But nonetheless, with the, by putting it in a frame, you're basically saying, in fact, in point of fact, for all of the differences inside, this is one important statement. Okay, Rick. <clears throat> is, uh, inclusio, uh, Italian for frame? Framework? Oh, it means an inclusion. To include. Inclusion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So but that works for the top and the bottom? The yes. bottom isn't. Exclusio. Oh no, no, it's, it's, just, it's part the of the whole thing. Is inclusio? It's okay, part of the inclusion. Yeah, right. Okay, thank you. Flatten, flatten. You know, it's, it's like brackets. If you say inclusio, you're thinking, "Oh my, I know, I know what an inclusio is." <laughs> you know, <can> <laughs> Latin. Okay. Yeah. Like brackets. Okay, thank you. Yes. All right. <clears throat> Okay, so the, 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 this, the, this psalm then establishes the theme that God, Hashem, as one, as the one God, and again, Hashem, not Elohim, right? Hashem, I mean, Yudhe Vavhe, um, <clears throat> that Yudhe Vavhe 
is the only God who's active in nature. Because as we're going to see clearly, natural phenomena are a part of the psalm, right? It's obvious. I mean, you'll see powerful natural phenomena. So we're dealing here with divine power and divine power that controls the power of, 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 of our, our world. That's what this is saying. And it's a kind of a non-polemical debunking of paganism because uh, the paganism of the ancient Near East, especially in Canaanite religions, uh, is very naturalistic, right? I mean, the various forces of nature were deified. That's common, right? It's common. But so this is by just totally over and over uh, repeating Hashem, 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 with all these statements of power that we're going to see, is making that statement. There's only one power, period, end of discussion. The other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of what we're going to read, as I said before, are Baal-associated uh, powers, particularly the, uh, the use of, of waters, particularly, you'll see how I mean that, particularly the thunderstorms, uh, earthquakes, things like that, all right? Those are part of the of the descriptives of the god Baal. So we're not only seeing a debunking of general naturalistic paganism, but there's a, some a specific god here that's that that this psalm has in sights. And as I said last time, remember a lot of people thought this was simply a re, reuse of uh, so almost almost plagiarism of of uh, Canaanite poetry about Baal. In fact, it is not. You want to say repurposing, you can say that. Repurposed in order to debunk Baal without being polemical. It's sort of highlighting the positive without mentioning the negative in the hopes and in the understanding that the reader will get the message. Okay? All right. Now, the second significant element here that's going to begin now in verse 3 is the use of the word kol, kuf vav lamed, which means voice, okay? It can mean sound, and we're going to hear, it, it refers to sound. Kol can mean a sound. It can mean, it can be used, hark, kol, koreba midbar, Okay, hark, there's something calling in the wilderness. Okay, but it mean, oh, when you say hark, what does it mean? Listen. So it's a, it's a, 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 a statement associated with the presence of a sound. Okay, so coal is the voice of God is going to be a very significant element here. Barrett. I have uh, two remarks. One, is the call that you mentioned is appearing here seven times? Yes. In this, um, in this mismore. What we mentioned. So that we want time. to say, we want to say maybe a siman, maybe a sign for seven days of the week. Maybe. I would go extending that. You're right. Seven days of creation. Seven yeah. days of creation. Yes. Right. 
better say than seven days of the week. Uh, the other remark is generally speaking about this um, Ms. Mo is portraying God in a form that we see his power in very tangible, concrete things. I hear the water. I see the falling of the trees. Yes. I see his power. Not which, you know, the people wanted to see something that is indeed concrete rather than saying that God is powerful and he's above right. and we don't know where he is. And that, of course, is in relationship of descriptions of other idols like Baal in other religions that we know. Right. Absolutely right. Um, the Mishkan itself is a compromise, if you think about it, giving the people something concrete to see. But you're yes. right. Um, it's clear that one of the problems that the ancient Israelites had was adapting to the concept of an invisible deity, a non material deity, a non-material deity. So you have to point to what Rambam would call, not God's attributes more, but God's actions. How does the power manifest itself in the world around us? And that is, I think, a to, de- to this day, a very viable way of helping people understand the presence of a non-material God. And you think about it also, I see your hand, Leon, just a second. Um, if you think about it also, and let's talk about creation, okay? What is the most prominently used verb in Genesis chapter 1? What single verb appears? Devar, isn't it Devar? Which word? Devar for says? Close, Amar. Bayomer, yeah. Bayomer, right. Amar, all of memory. Speak, says, God says. God says ten times. Other words are used, they're asa, and particularly bara, are used seven and six times, respectively. But amar is ten, ten times. And that's the same point. How does God, I mean, what's the, what's the key process in God, how God creates? He speaks, right? Speech is a very good action for a non-material God because you can hear it, but you can't see it, right? And they didn't know from sound waves. <laughs> they didn't understand there's a quasi-material thing happening as vibrations move through the air and hit our ears, right? It's not really material, right? It's not. But the point is, given the fact you can't see it and you you can hear it, right? I mean, you can hear the sound of the wind, yes? You can hear the thunder, right, in a storm, right? You can't see the nuclear, the the molecular explosion, however, that's taking place in the cloud because of the lightning (laughs) that causes the thunder. But as far as you're saying, my God, God is angry. Look what he's doing. Ooh, gee. Okay. So you're right. It says 
the power of God is expressed through nature, but it is not nature because God is beyond nature. Nature is physical. The God that rules it is the power that is beyond, that is behind all of nature. If you want to say that energizes nature, but God himself, non-material. Okay, Leon and then Tybal. All right, I just wanted to bring up Rashi is very nice on this. Just fun. Uh, he he gives a little story about Balam, Bilam, Arasha, and he says the sound made the people, you know, the idol worshippers come to him and say, "What is happening? What is happening? Uh, is it uh, will God bring a flood upon the world?" And he answers, "No, of course not. He already swore that he would not bring a flood. Rather, the sound of stirring you heard." is that the Holy One, blessed be he, is given Torah to his people. You know, so yes. he, he combines this with the Reamim and uh, right. we just heard a couple of weeks ago. Right. And But the fact is, at Muhammad Sinai, right, the people heard, according to plain meaning of, of, of Shemot, the people heard the ten words. God spoke and the people heard, right? And at the end of chapter 20, they're so scared. They say, Moses, no, 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 no. We can't take this. It's too overpowering. You you get the words and you tell us. But God wanted to talk directly to the people. But in this story, he says it's not just the Israelites that heard it. Even the guys with Bilam Arasha heard it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, it ver, 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 reverberated throughout the world, you could say. Yeah, yeah right. Powerful stuff, yes. Okay, Tybal. So you started to go there, but I wanted to hear you on the, the synesthesia in Mount Sinai, where the um, you use the term plain meaning, the people saw what is auditory and heard what is visual. Oh, well, there's one instance where, yes, there were, they say you saw the sound. They saw <clears throat> the sound of the shofar, okay? Right. But there's also, isn't there also a herd of visual? I thought it was both instant, two instances of synesthesia there. It may be, but the point is, again, it's used, it, it, you can't generalize from that. I think the point that they're trying to make is that the phenomenon was so unique that it was as if you saw the sound. Because remember, the people, the people, what we, what it's trying to say in the in the various versions that there are different versions in different subtleties. They're composite. Those those statements, uh, even within the Torah itself, are composites. I mean, I have not, I don't have time to break it down to you, but there are composites there. And the fact is that that that's okay, because once again, what the Torah is trying to impress upon us is that how God operates is not always clear to us to understand. We may, we may, our senses can even get confused because of the power of this. And they're basically saying it's a noise. It was a sound and, and an expression of energy that was so powerful that you could actually see the voice. It seemed to be that way. So they wrote it down. Okay. I mean, that's, I, I'm sure that's what's going on. But in general, the use of Amar, because it's used throughout the Bible, right? Or Vayadaber, which you said before, Vayadaber. Those terms, again, it's a speaking God. And God can speak and things happen, right? 
God said, I'm going to, I'll provide you with manna. It'll be there. And, 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 and food, bread. I mean, meat. You're going to get my, my version of bread, you know, from the, from these plants or whatever. It doesn't say that, but I mean, probably some kind of a plant. <laughs> they were vegans, right? Plant based, um, food. But the fact is, in this con, in the context of the miraculous expression, no, it was something that literally came from heaven. God said it would be there, and it was there. Did you see him make it? No, but there it was. Okay. And similarly, God said, I'm going to send you quail to eat. Sure enough, there they were. Okay. So, I mean, and God speaks and these things happen, plain and simple. Okay, so in that sense, you're seeing his voice, the results of his voice. But I think the mystery, the mystery that that develops in the process of expressing these things is intentional, because that's the whole point. It is a mystery. I say that over and over again, because the Bible struggles to put into concrete terms things that a non-material deity leaves in concrete, amorphous. What can you do? Okay. All right. Moving along. Um, da, 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 da. Okay. Now, <clears throat> call Adonai. Now we're going to begin with the voice. Call Adonai al Habayim el Hakavod Kirim Adonai al Mayim Rabim. The voice of Adonai is above the water. Okay. The voice now here, the kavod, it's interesting. The kavod is thundering. That's what it says. El ha kavod, the God of kavod, right? The God of the kavod is thundering. The God of the kavod, right? It's as if the kavod is the thing. It's an entity, an extension, if you will. Of God, Sadia Gaon, nine hundred, Iraq, Babel. Sadia says that when the Israelites spoke, God's voice was broadcast on Sinai through the Kavod. He calls it Kavod Nivra, which means a created Kavod. It's not the amorphous Kavod that is God. This is a sub-God, a sub, a product of God's creation called the created kavod, which is the, the, um, uh, microphone, no, the, the speaker through which God's voice is amplified. Okay. It's the PA system of God. So that's Sadya. And he, this is the verse. Eila kavod hirim. Right. That, that thunder, that noise, everything came out of the kavod. Okay. Here it probably means again, this God expression, because the kavod, remember the kavod came down on the mountain. So God was here is presented as a kavod. Okay. It's a divine powerhouse of glory. And that's where the voice came, that's where the thunder came from. And that ultimately is going to be, according to the understanding here, uh, what the, what this, what, what the people are going to hear. And then it goes back to Adonai al Mayim Rabim. Now this is not necessarily talking, by the way, hold on, I'm, I'm confusing you. 
This is not, this is not, I'm sorry, I, I, I confuse myself. This is not talking about Sinai. This is talking about the creation. All right. That's what this is talking about. The water. Okay. But I'm sort of what, what Sadia in from another use later on extracts from this, right? Since it says here that it, he read God with respect to what happened at Sinai, Sadia draws the conclusion that this is a created entity. Here it may not be a created entity. Here it may simply be this amazing voice, this amorphous voice. I'm sorry, I transposed that over here. So again, God's voice is above the waters. The power, the, 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 the glory God thundered. God is above multitudinous waters. Okay. All right. <clears throat> now, what is that talking about? Where do we hear of such a situation with God above waters? The Ruach Elohim Mirachefet Al Hamayim. Right. Al, Al Haaretz. Yeah. No, Al Hamayim. Right. Yeah. Okay. The, the, um, soup of the beginning of creation, the undifferentiated soup has water. Remember, there's darkness, water. It's actually deep water to home, which in and of itself is a reference to a pagan deity. Deep water. And by the way, Baal defeats deep water. So right here you have another kind of a debunking of Baal because God is over the water. God thundered over that water. Okay. And God overwhelmed that water. That's what this is implying. Going back to Genesis chapter one. So the, 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 the author of the psalm knows Genesis chapter one. Okay. And here, so the thunder is the powerful expression that allowed God to ultimately quiet down the waters and to, to literally, um, do away with the, you know, totally negate the power of the water. And so that's why I think, uh, you know, here the JPS says, um, mighty waters. Siegel says multitudinous waters because Rabim, you know, Rav can mean strong, but it can also mean multiple, multiple. And I think here I'm going to, I'm going to go with Benji Siegel because the point is they're not trying to indicate the power of water. They're not indicating that this water had any power of its own. Didn't have any power. God didn't give it any because it never had any in the first place. But, but it was the whole, because remember the whole earth was covered with water. That's what this is talking about. It's not just a lake or an ocean or a sea. It was the entire world. And God, boom, controlled that with his voice. Okay, yes. But here you get a sense of the thundering because that verb, resh, ayin, men, is used frequently as ra'am, which is thunder. It's thunder. So here it says thunders, both the JPS and, and uh, Siegel agree. There's a thundering going on here. So that is one expression of the voice of God, a powerful one. Right. And again, that's a Baal reference as well. But here you wouldn't know that. 
All right. It's not nature making the noise here. It's God. All right, moving on. Um, Now, um, so 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 this is here, the the use, now here, here, im, that verb, is used in Exodus chapter 19. All right? It says, on the third day, when it was morning, Okay, so there was kolot uvrakim, kolot kol, a kol kols, you know, plural, multiple. What's barak? Lightning. Barak is lightning. So what comes with lightning? Thunder. Thunder. Oh, here it's clear that ra'am, right? That cold, sorry, that cold refers, can, can refer to thunder. And then it says, Anan this huge cloud is on the, on the hill, on the mountain. The cold show here, cold shofar is written. Okay. That's the sound of the shofar. So here it's not, it's in a sense the voice of the shofar, but it means the sound of the shofar. So we have a variant on it. Okay. Now, Chazak, very strong. Now, Vayecharad kol ha'am asher b'machaneh. And the mountain, I'm sorry, the people shook. The people, all the people in the the encampment shook. Now, why are they shaking? Okay, why are they shaking? Well, one answer could be because they're scared out of their wits, right? They are scared out of their wits. By the way, they're shaking. They're quaking. They're Quakers. They're Quakers. No, no joke. The term Quaker, I looked it up, came came into use in the, around 1650. Some person in England called them Quakers, or maybe within the group, because they quake in the presence of the Word of God. Because of their, their, their fear of the power of the Almighty, they quake. And today that term is used for Haredim. They quake. So we have our own Quakers. They shake. In other words, the whole point is they sense they're standing in the presence of this ominous power. And it's like this. Oh my God. He loves me, but my goodness, he scares me at the same time. Okay. So, I mean, we have our own Quakers. So, so next time you want to buy a cereal, what time, what kind should you buy? Quaker oats. Ah, never mind. All right. Thunder and lightning and shaking. Okay. So God goes out and the people stay at the bottom of the mountain. Now we're finishing up. So Mount Sinai, Bahar Sinai, Ashan Kulot, all cloudy. We play Asher. Yarad alab Adonai ba'esh. God came down in the fire. Ooh. Now, is God the fire? He's in the fire. Where is in, where do we know God is in the fire? Where else? Burning bush, right? Right. And where did the burning bush take place? In the desert? On Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. So this is God, by the way, this is God's, it's called Kar, Har Elohim. You know that. Sinai has many names. Sinai, it's called 
the God, the mountain of God, of Elohim, or of mountain of the gods. That's not unusual in the Middle East. Baal had a mountain in the north, right? In Greece, Mount Olympus, the mountain of the gods. Why? Because these are things that reach up into heaven. So if God's presence wants to come down to earth, you know, he'll take the shortest route. Go to the top of a mountain. Makes perfectly good sense. You do the same, right? Especially if they're very tall mountains, right? Mount Sinai, the mountains in the Sinai Peninsula are not what you'd call Himalayas, okay? Look, I can look out my windows here, and on one side I can see Mount Baldy. Those are Takish Mountains, right? They're 10, 11,000 feet. Then I see the other mountains here in the northwest part of the valley, right? And they're, what, 5,000 feet, baby mountains. And then you have the Santa Monica Mountains, which are Taka Peewee Mountains compared to these guys. So Mount Sinai, I don't know, about somewhere in there, not the biggies. That's all right. Remember the rabbis tell us, why did God pick Mount Sinai? Because it was the most humble of the mountains, right? To remind us that within God, when God's presence, we are to be humble like Sinai. And God will, because of our humility, give us Torah. Good lesson. Yes, be humble. All right. But then it says, Vayecharad kol ha'har ma'od, and the mountain trembled violently. So yes, the people may have been shaking internally, but guess what, folks? They were also shaking externally because the mountain was shaking. This is a major natural phenomenon. Wow, can you imagine standing there? I don't think Cecil B. DeMille caught this fully. There's no way. He didn't have surround sound. Now, today, if you have big screen, let's say you have it on what you might call it, the, the huge screen, right? And you have surround sound, you might get a sense of what that's like. Maybe. Rabbi, could it have been an earthquake? Aha. Uh-huh. This is a good question. I will get to that answer shortly. Okay. It could be because, no, I don't know enough about the, the, uh, the uh, seismic history. I could have checked it. You know, I didn't. Because we don't know where Mount Sinai is. That's the problem. We don't know. Now, what I should have done, actually, oh, I just thought of, why didn't I think of this earlier? Uh, we'll see. I checked. I did check on some earthquake zones. I'll get to that. But um, it's possible that that there are earthquake areas crisscrossing Sinai. And it's possible that Mount Sinai was in one of those areas. Now, if we could check the seismic records, and I don't know if they have seismic records going back this far, but if there are mountains, Taka mountains that exist that are near, that are in, in, in earthquake zones, it'll help us understand where Sinai may have been or was supposed to have been. But yes, it could be earthquake, but it could also be the, but you see again, there's nothing in their minds, not that it's possible that the sound of the voices, the power of the, of the thunder, which is God's sound, shakes the mountain and is responsible for an earthquake simultaneously. It's all part of one phenomenon. Okay. All right. And the people were shaking too. Tybal. So it doesn't come as a surprise. You don't buy St. Catherine's Monastery is really on Sinai. 
Yeah, Who we, knows? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Although there's things we'll see, you know, in my my um, Sunday, my tomorrow morning, my tomorrow noon class, we will be talking eventually about some stuff that is very interesting vis-a-vis the the fauna, no flora, sorry, of the Sinai Peninsula. We'll get there. Something else completely, but um, there's some interesting stuff associated with Mount Sinai that we can talk about. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so um, here again, this this powerful moment. Moving on. Okay, now continuing with the voice. Now we're going to look at verse five. Call Adonai Shover Arazim by Shaber Adonai at Arze Halvanon. The voice of God, this this powerful sound, smashes cedar trees. And God indeed smashes the cedar trees of Lebanon. Okay. Now, cedar trees, we know, were prime lumber back then. I don't know, sort of like redwood today. Okay. I don't know. I, I, you know, I have not checked the structure of remnants, wooden remnants from biblical times. I don't know if there's any wood left over from biblical times, but the fact is, it was used for very important purposes. You know an example of a building, very important building in biblical times, that according to the record that we have, was built with cedar wood. What are we talking about? Solomon's Temple. Solomon's Temple, right? And it's not surprising that he brought in Hiram, Hiram, Melech, Tzor, right, from Tyre, to help them build the temple. Where's Tyre? Lebanon, right? It's not right right nearby, but it's not far. And Mount Lebanon is mentioned, we will see in a moment here. So this area, that area up there was, was, was they harvested cedar trees up there. But the point is, it's a very strong tree. So when God says he smacks, it doesn't say he breaks. It says, by Shaber, Adonai, Shaber, that's a, the PL form, it's a strong form. He smashes these, these powerful trees. Okay? Smashes. Now, we're going to move into earthquake land. By Archidame Kemo Egel. By the way, the structure here is very similar to, um, um, the, the very beginning. The repetition of words here, where it's as if there is a thought that is broken up by something and then a thought continues. We've seen this all along here, okay? And and it's part of the structure, the style of the here. So, kol Adonai shover arazim, vayshaber Adonai arzebel. God, the voice of God breaks, there it's shover, which means breaks breaks mountains. In fact, it does indeed God smashes the, the Arze Halvanon. Right? He smashes the these trees. So that kind of repetition adding in and something new in the second part. Okay? Here too. By Kemo Ego, he makes them jump like calves. Well but who's he talking about? Levanon Vasirion, oh the mountains come over and like um, wild uh 
like young wild oxen. Okay, so he's now talking about God making mountains shake. So here we now come to the the question: Is that that was that what happened at Sinai? Was it an earthquake? Is that what this is talking about? And now I must tell you my scientific research. Well, I'll get to that in just a second. But I have done great research, sweating to find an answer here. But first, we have to read the um, the next verse. Okay. Now again, this is in the north, right? Think Baal, right? This is this is a mountain. These are mountains in the north. So mean by implication, if you guys believe, if you pagans believe that Baal lives on a mountain, I guarantee you, God shook that mountain and shook Baal out of it. So forget about it, because Baal is nothing. Okay, but he starts with the mountains in the north. You'll see where he ends up in a minute. But look at verse seven again. Call the voice of God, the sound of God, splits. Literally, uh, uh, cuts flames of fire. What's he talking about? Well, that's lightning again, right? That accompanies the thunder. There's the voice. This is the lightning. But what does it mean? A chatzav is a stonemason, a guy who cuts stones. When you take a metal implement and put it hard on and fast on a stone, what can you get? Sparks, right? That's what's going on. God is a stonemason who takes his invisible metal uh, axe, slams it on the mountain, right? And that makes a spark, and there's thunder. Or slams it in the hill, whatever, the invisible. The point is, he's talking about flashes of lightning. And it's like with the Ten Commandments, no? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Polotu Brakim, thunder and lightning. That's another that's what's happening here. Aish can mean not just fire, it can mean lightning. Because it has it has the same results. It hits something and then it starts to it starts a fire. All right? And if it hits you, I guarantee you, mm, you're gonna feel it. Thank God it never hit me. People have survived lightning hit, but sometimes they don't. Okay. All right. So that's, again, this is thunder and lightning standing alone, but it's continuing the whole picture here. Now, is it possible? So what are, are, what are Lebanon Vesirion? Sirion is today's equivalent to Mount Hermon, right? In the Golan, right? Israelis go skiing on Mount Hermon. In fact, it's split. Part of it's Syrian, part of it is Israeli. And each has a communication center on it. I probably don't get much, much, much done because each one is probably trying to cancel out the other. I don't know, just joking. But the fact is, we know what that is. And Mahar Lebanon, there's a valley, and then closer to the ocean is Mount Lebanon, north, a little bit north and west of, of Hermon. They're both there. They are real. Okay. And it's probably somewhere in that area where the, where the, um, cedar trees were harvested. All right. And they can get, they get snow. We know, right? You know that they get snow. Okay. 
But the question is, is it possible that they could have earthquakes? And the answer to the question is yes, because, wait a minute, wrong, top of, top of the, here, here's a map, okay? You see the Jordan River rift? This is the Jordan, and this is called the um, Arava rift. It's a single, that's a whole, that's a fault right down there from basically Syria, Iraq, up here, all the way down to the Sea of Reeds, and no, the Red Sea into Egypt. And it's an active fault. We know about it. I'll give you some more information in a minute. There's no question about it. It's a major fault zone. But there's a lot of little spin-offs of it. So this is <clears throat> literally, you know, part of it in the north. Okay, you see that? So this area, the, these are faults. I mean, I, I made them larger with my pen. This is the fault zone. Can you see it? Everybody see it? Yes, yes. And you wrote a date there, sir, the 749. There's an earthquake That's at a certain date. No, 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 no. That's something else. I'll get to that in a minute. Don't look okay. at that. Don't jump ahead. <laughs> okay. I won't look at it. All right. Um, all right. So here you have Lebanon. Here you have Hermon. And clearly they are in the middle of fault zones. So it is indeed very possible that in that area they feel earthquakes and it makes the mountain shake to one degree or another. And so this is not Bubba Mises. In a sense, it's real. Okay? All right. Now, 749. You see where the now this is this is CE. This is post this is Middle Ages. You see the area that I marked with the X on the on the river? The big X right there. Okay. In 749 CE, there was a huge 7.0 earthquake right there. Okay. And it wreaked havoc all over the area. Israel, Syria, West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, all got hit. Have you ever been to Beit Shan? Okay. It's, it's a city, it has got the, the most, in Eretz Israel, the most fully developed city you can see. You can walk down the streets. You can see the, where the buildings fell over. You can see all kinds of things. I even took a group there and I showed them how a statement, the understanding of different kinds of areas, of, lo, lo, of zones of areas in a given, in a city. Uh, private property, middling property, public property, etc. If you just look at how these buildings were built, you see it right there. What's the private zone? What's the middling zone? What's the public zone? It's all laid out in front of you. Okay? That's in terms of transferring things on Shabbat. Okay? That's a very technical thing. We're not going to study that now. All right. However, if you look at what's there, everything that fell over is all lying in the same direction. What direction? The, the way the earthquake moved, where those earthquake waves underground shook it. And they all went, boom, and this beautiful city suddenly was knocked over. 
Before that, it was standing. You could walk through it like you walk through, you know, if you go to the Acropolis and look and see, you know, standing. Then suddenly it was over. There's places all over the, in that area that fell. There are records of other towns, other places. And many of the, 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 the Arab builders who were there, because they controlled that area then already, they, they, they repurposed pillars from these fallen areas into new buildings. Literally, they had not, they didn't care about, you know, archaeology. Here are pre-made pillars, guys, just what we're looking for. So they schlepped it over. This king would build himself a palace and they used, you know, that goes on throughout the world that way. It's nothing new. Nothing new. Repur- that you, you call it repurposing again, right? Makes sense. Anyway, so that, that fault, same fault. Okay. So yes, this is real. This actually, this is not it's some author's exaggeration. I remember when, when Avi and Sharon were first married and they were living in an apartment in Tel Aviv. <clears throat> Six o'clock in the morning, they're get they're awakened by an earthquake, which was somewhere, you know, east of Tel Aviv, either that fault or a sub-fault from it, you know. But yeah, so Sharon, being from London, doesn't know from earthquakes. She jumps out of bed. She's going crazy. Avi's lying in there, half asleep. She says, get out of bed. What are we going to blah, 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 blah. She's totally lost her mind. Avi says, get back get into bed. Be quiet. Nothing's wrong. But it's an earthquake. Avi says, so what? This is nothing. You know, it was a four or five. Who knows? You know, you know, but he, Avi's used to it. Nothing. <laughs> but poor Sharon. Oh, my God. Ask her about it when you see her. She'll give you It's a good laugh. Yeah. She calmed down afterwards, but you know, but it happens. It happens. It's going to happen more. All Do right. they have any earthquake building laws over in Israel? If they again, what? You know the earthquake laws that we have about building here in California. Yeah. Do they have any similar laws for buildings nowadays in Israel? Do they have? Yeah, sure. Oh, I mean, to keep buildings safe. Do they have laws for buildings? How yeah. they should be built. Of course they do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're look there in, in certain areas of the towns, in certain areas, in the, uh, you know, in the, in the Arab villages that were built, you know, a long time ago. You can't uh, do anything. I know. They're, you know, they're, they're not, but they're, they, they make, they build, they know how to build solid buildings. But yes, they have codes. Of course they do. You don't, I mean, when that happened, there was no major law. No, nobody in Israel died. I don't think anybody in the area died. It wasn't that strong, but the, the damage was minimal, uh, you know. But I, they look in our day. Thank God they have not had a real big one. Okay, they, they did not have. They didn't have a Northridge. Okay, Tybel. <clears throat> I just looked fast and I saw something that said if there's another earthquake on that rift, ten thousand people around where Beit Shan was might die in Israel. Possible. I'm not saying it's a reputable source. That's just what came up first. So, in other words, the rift is still active. I mean, there are there are home. Look, I don't know the degree to which they've retrofitted homes for earthquakes. That's a different question. They've done that here. They had to, you know. But whether they because there's a lot of villages. I mean, that you know, Arabs and some Jews live in too. Old areas where they have had homes and they don't want to move and so forth. And you know, 
<clears throat> a lot of old buildings in Israel, as you know. Okay, now moving on. Call Adonai. All right, so here. Now we're switching geography. Call Adonai Yachil Midbar, Yachil Adonai Midbar Kadesh. Again, this sort of repetition, adding something new. Uh, the voice, the, the voice of God causes the, causes wilderness to convulse. The wilderness has convulsion. Not an earthquake. Yes. Okay. The Lord convulses the wilderness of Kadesh. The Lord convulses the, where's Kadesh? Kadesh is in the western part of the Negev. This is talking about an, what was an oasis. This is the place where Moses hits the rock the second time. And he and Aaron are prohibited into Eretz Yisrael. It was a major play, major center. It was also a major cultic center because it was an oasis. And that's a place where merchants, you know, as they traveled through the desert, that was a very important place for them. All right. So the question is, are there faults in that area? And once again, looking at the maps, what do we see? You see where Kadesh is? Within a short distance of that, where that is. And that's just the, the, the border is just west of that. The, the Negev of the Negev. So this is in Eretz Israel. Four zone, four quake, four, uh, faults. Four, you see them? One, two, three, four. Four different faults. So don't tell me there's no earthquakes over there. Okay. So once again, we see that there's reason to assume that when the poet writ this, he wrote this, he knew what he was talking about. But what is this telling us then? So this immense power of God is manifested most powerfully where in Eretz Israel. So because basically you're starting at the top and going all the way down to the bottom of what was that Eretz Israel in biblical times, right? And that's where the power was concentrated. Of course it was. Now, we know God is universal God, but it's natural in antiquity. Most often gods were associated with the specific area where they were worshipped. <clears throat> the diaspora, ultimately, after the destruction of the first temple, was a validation of the universality of God, because that one already was hard history, right? When you read Ezekiel, he is there. Okay, he is there, and he's, he has a record of it. And we know from Babylon, from Persian documents that the Jews were there, that the Jews gave permission for them to come, that the Persians got permit, gave permission to the Jews to come back. What the book of, uh, of Ezra has, the document in Aramaic that the king gave them, we, they have found an identical Ara, uh, document almost word for word, for the Babylonians to go back to their temple cities. So the fact is, there were Jews in Babel who stayed there and experienced things. All right. And they were there and they continued to worship God. Because when you come back centuries later, guess what? They're still there. And that becomes the next major center of Judaism 
taking all sucking all the energy literally out of Eretz Yisrael and 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 focusing it up there. Okay, so diaspora, all these people. So now they are in a foreign land, and then after that destruction of the temple, they're in Egypt also. And they're worshiping God in Egypt. They built synagogues down there. They even built a temple, a trade temple. They they built a temple. Some of the Jews down there built a temple. It's in the records. Okay, it's no question. All right, and we know that they were offering prayers and possibly sacrifices uh, in the near Aswan, where the the Jews had a. They were soldiers who were there on behalf of the Persian government protecting the southern border, okay? All right? In what is today Aswan, that area, Svene, Elephantine, it's called, okay? So, I mean, there was, so you get the sense now that God is universal God. He's, he can be found everywhere if there was any question, right? Obviously, the stories of the Exodus and the experience in Egypt also validate that, according to the Torah, because God was speaking to them in Sinai, which is not part of Eretz Israel. Yes? Yes, of course. It's where the Ten Commandments were given. In a sense, the fact that that's to, that, that, that tradition exists validates the universality of God. He's everywhere. All right? But the, but the fact is, yes. But still, even, and I don't know the dating of this psalm. Okay? I'm not going to, I can't say, I can't tell you. Uh, these are, there are old traditions here that create, that creation story in Genesis chapter one is very sophisticated. It's, it's probably relatively late. It could be seventh century or early eighth century or, yeah, I mean, you know, low 700s. It could be, I, I would think that because it clearly knows the, this, this psalm knows that, that tradition. And so that's probably when it was put together. But the point is, um, uh, the, the, nonetheless, you still have this sense that there is a kind of a focal point to the power of the God. Where is the most poignant, the most powerful place in Eretz Israel? Obviously, Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is the most powerful place. So it expands out from there. All right, now, continuing. Look at the word yachil, to convulse. All right, now look at the next verse. Kol Adonai Yechole the voice of God causes uh, the birth of, causes hinds to calve. In other words, female uh, sheep, no, female, um, come on. just Bovine? No, 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 no. Um, deer? Deer, Goats? thank you. I Goats? No, oh, yeah, no, 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 deer, deer, deer. Yeah. Ayala is a goat. Ayala is a deer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there. Yeah, I mean, there's elk. I was thinking elk only because my my kids in Denver have elk in the backyard, live elks, not oaks, elks that pass through there. So I was thinking. Another one on you on? But that's that's not the thing. All right. No. So this what what this is this is verse nine. Perfect. Thank you. It causes female deers to calve, to give birth to babies. That's unbelievable. Nice. The point, what is it compared to what we, what is this telling us? The power of God is found where? In thunder and lightning and earthquakes 
inside bodies in an animal giving birth um there is another explanation that ayalot is actually not an animal a deer female deer but it's a name of a tree and yes. it's it's related like to ela the name that is similar kind of similar in writing that it is a very very big and robust tree and that god is able to make them those tree move and dance and right. go around except yoholel khil kayoleda that for that right. point it's the same verb it's based on the same verb as convulsing in the previous to connection mm-hmm. and it's no it's but this is talking about literally the uh, the 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 causing of a, a female deer to have a baby i hear what you're saying it's an interesting it, thing it have a baby before it's time if you want to go this way so that's Possibly. a miracle but it but anyway but the fact it's what it means is literally to have a baby where there are pangs of delivery that's what's going on the mother like here animals have the same thing they you know there's an experiencing of something when the baby is born it's really talking about the voice is there it's using the verb for convulsing and applying it here because what it is saying is the same power that causes the earth to shake can cause as delicate and as private and as infinitesimally small the birth of a little baby to happen and not a human baby even created in the image of god an animal a delicate think about a, a deer very delicate animal this delicate animal is giving birth to a delicate little baby the same power that causes mountains to jump causes a baby to be born that's what this is saying and that's that's what that's astounds me but then on the other hand look at the next line and yeah this is this uh, sort of gives uh, uh you know um validity to the idea that it's a tree because they talk about forest yes it's possible but he could be also be making a play on the word i alot knowing that it can refer to a tree also and he flips now to trees that's mm-hmm. why the trees are mentioned there i mean i think it's right. very interesting i mean i he may be making word plays here you know because there is a similarity there's no question okay um yeah so he but here they he cause this is interesting he strips away the 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 all the greenery of a of a of a tree which basically means renders in he renders it impossible for the tree to reproduce the tree then will not be able to drop seeds it's not going to have any children okay but it's the same power i mean this guy's brilliant this this poet is absolutely brilliant that's that's my 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 feeling about this okay absolutely brilliant now now there's going to be a radical switch suddenly he switches but in his hechal everything shouts glory 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 first of all i want to suggest hechal 
may have a sound association with Holel, Hechal, Holel, Hechal, Holel. Okay, so he may be actually making a wordplay, but he's transitioning us now into something different. We're moving to the conclusion. But what's interesting here, which I did not mention and I will now, there's a subframe. Look at verse 9. There are three verbs. Holel, Yechesof, Omer. Right? Three different clauses. Yes? You agree? Yes. Look at, one second. Look at verse 3. Call Adonai al Hamayim, one segment. El Akavod Hirim, two segment. Adonai al Mayim Rabim, three segments. Okay. This is the, so verse three is the first appearance of the word kol. Verse nine is the last appearance. Each of those sentences, as opposed to the others, has three segments, not two. Got it? So I'm saying this is a frame within a frame. The use of the voice, which has been operative now from verse three, through verse 9, is now over. In addition, we're transferring over to something new because, and I think, I think, I really believe now that Heichal was put there because of, of the sound with with Cholel. I, re, I really think so. But it ends with Omer, but it's not, you see, it ends with Omer, with the, somebody talk, saying something, but it's not God it's the in somebody someone or some things that are in the in the in the in the temple of god rick <clears throat> um if i could also suggest we have kavod and oz at the beginning and there everybody shout it's the congregation i think is shouting kavod there and then oz is coming up in verse 11 so that i think that's another framework just by the vocabulary of it. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Let me just take just hold on. Kavod va'oz in verse. Uh, You're one. right. Verse one and verse. It's part of the frame. Oz, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> excellent. Is... Yes, I forgot to note that. That is correct. <clears throat> verse Thank one and... oz. Right. So and the kavod, it's like baruch adonai kavod mim komo. It's it's like the kedusha. Also, there's kavod in there. Baruch Kavod, I don't know. All right. Now, okay. So now we're going to focus on God's power minus the voice. All right. Now, now the the use of the word Heichal here is very interesting. Heichal can mean a palace. It can also mean a place inside of a temple. <clears throat> and so when you see that sound... One imagines what one is, one's mind jumps to Isaiah chapter six, which depicts God in like a heavenly palace temple. Okay. It appears in both of these instances that we're not talking about a temple in Jerusalem. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a hechal, a palace that we will see is also a temple. Okay. Um, the the point is that it says here that the sounds of praise of God are coming out of the Heichal. So the Heichal is inside. 
the, there were no sounds that came out of the temple in Jerusalem, as far as we know. All were them, their their choirs, and their orchestras outside. It appears that the priestly activity inside was done in silence, because there's no reference to anything that the, that they say. Okay, there's nothing. There's plenty of opportunity. To talk, they talk about priests a lot, especially in Vayikra, and there's nothing associated with their worship. So my judgment, my base based upon that, I think this is talking about a heavenly palace temple. Okay, Leon. Yeah, well, it just reminded me what we read every morning in uh, the Shimon Esrei. Okay. In where? The Shimon Esrei. Exactly. That's Isaiah 6. That's what I'm talking We're going to get there. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm talking about. But I want to give you some details about what's before it. Listen to this. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, I'm reading now Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. We're going to go over tonight, guys. So be patient. Okay, because we started uh, half an hour, a quarter hour late. So I'm, I'm punishing you for my computer's <laughs> failure. Sorry. I apologize on behalf of my computer. All right, here we go. King Uzziah died. So we're talking 742 or 739 BCE. And as the prophet is saying, Yeshayahu. I see God st- sitting on an exalted throne, a chair, a throne, a kisei. All right. And the skirts of God's robe are filling the temple. As far as I know, this is the only time in the Bible where God's clothing is described. This is Isaiah. This is a vision. This is what he sees. So his his robe, it's it's like some of the you know when you see the one of the royalties royals got married her train like it looked like it slept on for three miles there's this huge long train that followed her when she got you know as she was going up to be married and this is the same so this is this huge long robe that extends out okay <clears throat> all right now. Then it goes on to say, So there are, now here again, this is not the temple. Srafim, seraph angels, are standing above him, right? It's like a, you know, Crowning area. I see Malaz, see your hand just a second, okay. Um they're they're above him. Uh and they're it says how they they have six wings. Two of them cover their bodies, two of them cover their faces, and with two they fly. Okay, and I, in, in Ezekiel's vision they only have four wings. Okay. In Ezekiel's vision, however, they constitute the chariot upon which God rides. Here, that too is very interesting. But that's not in Jerusalem either. But here, different vision, the angels are up here. 
floating above. Okay. And they, they cry out one to the other, Kadosh, 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 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, his, the whole earth is filled with his Kabod. Kabod. Therefore, Kabod here now appears to be not an adjective defining, but rather an essence, a presence. God's presence literally fills the whole earth. Because this is a palace up there, and the presence radiates down and fills the earth. Okay, Melissa, you froze. Oh, really? There you are. You're back. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, When you said that the temple was, um, the priests in the temple were quiet, that they didn't make any, that there was no noise coming from the temple. And I just was thinking about on Yom Kippur when we, kind of recreate the temple service and there's certain things that are said and um are you just are you saying nothing was I don't know, just I just that that is a that seemed to be at odds with I, I thought there were certain um words that the priest said the only thing that it says and it's strange because the the, the rabbis wrote this it's not biblical mm-hmm. that's the rabbis interpreting it but it says, when the people heard the holy name of God, they fell prostrate, right, in the courtyard. It's mm-hmm. impossible. That's rabbinic imagination. Ah. Because mm-hmm. by definition, the priests were not allowed to mention God's name in public. So I don't understand that. Nobody's ex- ever explained that to me. Mm-hmm. That's the okay. only thing that they, if they heard, that's the only thing. But that, and that was not routine ritual, right? That would only have been on Yom Kippur. That's an exception that proves the rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the point is, yeah. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Why do we say Hashem? Do you mm-hmm. pronounce your name? I don't know how to pronounce it. No, but the name, the pronunciation, it's possible that there was a period in time when it was, when people used it. It may be. And it may be that that is a reflection on, at some point in the Second Temple period, that the people did, or first temple. Maybe it's hard to go back to the first temple. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. But uh, the tradition has been, if it's the rabbinic tradition, don't say it. And here they, the rabbis, somebody in the rabbinic group wrote that poem, right? The Avodah service. But that's all that they heard. Okay. okay. All right. Okay, so this is this is, you know, and then it says, this is the the uh, fourth fourth verse. And the doorposts would shake at the sound of the one who called, and the house kept filling with smoke. What does this mean? The one who called, probably the one who called out for them to say kadosh kadosh, the one of the angels, and the doorposts, you know, of the house were shaking. So shaking again. Okay. Um, all right. So this is a heichal. Okay. So a heichal, as I said, could mean palace. It could mean it's used sometimes to mean the larger hall of the temple, the kodesh, the holy place that leads to the veer, the, the holy of holies. Okay. So it's not clear, but it, it is a term that's used with a temple. But in Isaiah, in Isaiah's vision, it appears he's viewing a throne room in a heavenly palace. God sits on a throne, not the holy ark. 
right? The earthly throne. The seraphs hover over God. They don't constitute the throne as they do in the temple, right? The throne, the, the arms that are stretched out over the ark as described in Exodus is where the divine presence resided. That's where God lived. Okay. Okay. God's wearing a robe. We know the priests wore robes, right? Did God wear a robe? Does it have scissors? I know he put on tefillin, so the rabbis tell us. Okay. <laughs> but maybe he wore, maybe he had a talus too. I don't know. They were very big tefillin. Yeah. You mean God is Jewish? God's Jewish. Yes. Okay. <laughs> At least the Jewish God is Jewish. Yes. Yes. But he's the only God. Then he goes on. This, this is interesting though. Isaiah's talking. One of the seraphs, one of those six, flew to me, and in his hand was was a coal in, in a, in, in, um, thongs that he took from the Mizbeach. So in, in the divine, in the divine temple area, there was a, a, there was a mizbeach, and he took a coal, and with that he touched Isaiah's mouth, because Isaiah said, "I'm full of sin, I can't speak, you know, for God." So they cleanse it. Now you can talk, no excuses. So he goes on, whatever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right. So this is a vision of Isaiah. He's seeing this divine scene. He's hearing this. And out of this, he will envision an act that purifies him so he can express the words that go, with which God fills him as the prophecies that he's going to share with the people. That's the whole point of this. Okay, so that's that temple. But now let's get back to the song. So God is, their praising of God comes from within. Presumably, as, as we've said, he may have taken this image from Isaiah, which would put him around seven, which if this is the case, Isaiah is living around 700, 740 to about 720. I'm sorry, 840 to, no, 720 to about 680, 740 to 680, that air, that range. Anyway, so it's very possible He's reading Isaiah. He saw this, and this is the whole point. That's what was happening. That's what came out of the temple. Okay, this code, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Okay? All right, and he heard that. All right. But then it says, verse 10, Adonai yashav. Right, God was sitting on a throne. So God sat at the flood on the throne. And God will sit forever on the throne. Why the flood? Why the flood? Well, remember, it began earlier. God is over the waters, right? So this is a whole thing where he's playing with the waters. Get it? God controls the waters. God could split the waters as he wished and make continents and, you know, dry lands and seas. Or he could open up all the waters and flood the world, right? Because God controls the waters. 
the flood. So I want to say this is harking back to when the earlier God talks about it talks about God being over the waters. But why Dafka the flood empowers them to sit on the throne? Because at this point, what it's saying is this validated the ultimate power of God to the creator, to the creatures whom he created, the flood. It proved to the people that this is a, this God and the animals, that this God is ultimately powerful. God can create a world. He can destroy a world and he can restore a world. That's it. And he is totally in charge. It's in a sense what happened when the first temple was destroyed and the people went up to Babel and came back. Polytheism in that group did not exist as far as we know. If there were any polytheists there, they converted to monotheism because we do not hear of, a, of, poly, of, of the issue of people worshiping idols in the prophets who came after the return of the exile. Archaeologically, they have not found evidence of idol worship in the areas where these returnees lived once they came back. It seems as if that, that horrific tragedy cleansed the people of their tendencies to idolatry. And this is like a foreshadowing of that. The flood did the same thing, except the people ultimately fell back into their ways. And, I, you know, there's a Tower of Bible afterwards, da-da-da. And then, you know, he points the Israelites, and they screw up a little, da-da-da, exodus from Egypt, rebellion in the desert. The whole point is after that, takes a long time to learn the lessons. But the point is that this this God, God was validated by the power that he had to express in purging the world of the evil at the time of the flood. And after this, that's it. And God will sit on that throne forever. Now, finally, the last verse. Okay. Adonai Ozleamo Yitain Adonai Right? May Adonai grant might to his people. May Adonai bless his people with peace. Okay. All right. So again, O's, right? What Rick said, repetition, framing, conclusion. Like Psalm 19, this is a plea to God. Psalm 19 and there are other Psalms that end that way. The conclusion of a Psalm with a plea to God is not unusual. Because this is a, a recognition of divine power and at the same time, a plea to God. Okay, what's the plea? Please, we praise you that you have the you have power. That's what we've been. That's what the psalm has done. Please, God, give you have the strength that you can give to the people. Please, God, do so, and bless us with peace. Because if we have strength, we will be able to live in peace. Your strength with us. Okay? Two references to God's name here. Okay? Two references to God's name in verse 10. The same as verses 1 and 2. O's, O's, right? End of psalm. Amazing psalm. Yep. From Melissa, did you have your hand up again? 
or is it up there from before? I'm, I'm sorry, I did not take it down. Okay. Hold on. It. Okay, no, it's okay. Just wanted to make sure you just want to say anything. All right, Tybal and then Mike Harris. So I heard that, or I read the flood very differently than you just explained it, the flood and enthroning. It's, to me, it's like when you say to children who are frightened of weather or bad guys or something, the house will keep you safe. Yes, there are things out there that could hurt you, but the house will keep you safe. The flood to me was a reminder of the covenant for all people that God wasn't going to do it again when it added the enthroned at the flood. But you see it more as the, the power of the possible destruction than the, than the outcome that it won't happen again. No, I don't. I think this is a general statement. I'm not saying that one that the, the issue of the destruction of the temple had anything directly to do to this, nor the other, nor this to that. I just said it sort of operated. What this is suggesting is the same kind of a process that took place, that the flood served the same kind of purpose. Sometimes a huge catastrophe shakes a people, and they suddenly start doing introspection. What happened? Why did this happen? Did we have anything to do about it? Let's make sure if we did that we don't do it again. That type of a thing. But this is, this is, again, this is not a, this prayer is not a universal prayer. This is speaking to the people, right? It's only for Israel, right? So in the sense that, yes, what this is saying, similar to what you said, Bible, is yes, this God has tremendous power. And God can can put us in a situation where we can live peacefully because he's got this great power. You can rely on it, okay? But waiting, but what he's basically saying is, no, please, you have the capacity to do this. Now, please do it so that we can live in peace. I plead, I am making a plea to you, God, do it now so we can live in peace, please. We believe you can do it. Show us. That's what I think is, is going on here. Okay. All right, Mike. Yes. Uh, so I think the $64 question is why uh, this psalm was included in the Siddur when we return the Torah scroll at the end of Torah service. And I've got, I've got a guess, but I don't know if it's, if that's. What's your, what's your guess? My guess is that the, the basic theme of the psalm is the power of God's voice. And this shows the Torah is a, is a written form of God's voice. And we should remember that it's powerful and we have to obey it. Bingo. And how many times is it mentioned? Seven. What day is Shabbat? Seventh day. Seven. But you're right. The voice of God resonates within the words of the Torah. And, and the, the mystics literally believe that each letter of the Torah convey, con, contains an essence of divine power and holiness. Literally, physically, it's in there. So the spiritual element is within each letter. So they take, and therefore, if you will, the silent, the, the unheard, when we read it, and that's why the tradition is, whether you're a mystic or not, when you read Torah, you really should read it precisely because you are the mouthpiece of God when you read the Torah. God is speaking through you. So you should express God. And this is something Rick Muller will appreciate. I thought, I think he had to go. But, oh, you're there. There you are. Rick, I'm here. 
right? <laughs> when you read Torah, yeah. you have to feel that you are literally expressing to the people. You're you're the microphone. You're the you're the 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 broadcasting. You're the kavod nivra, right? The re, the the built glory with through which the voice resonates. And since Shabbat, we read the Torah. The you know a huge chunk of Torah relative to weekday. Yes, whether it's triennial or the whole thing, you're reading a gazunter piece of Torah here, right? And so mm-hmm. indeed we focus on that, and that's why that psalm is read. Okay, all right. Good questions, as always. Good discussion. Thank you. We all learn from one another, and we shall continue to do so. And please, God. Thank you, Rabbi. Psalm 34. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.